Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, John chapter 15. And as we come to this text and as we come to this table, as we remind ourselves even in our worship this morning of the grace of God, as we build upon last week's message about the saving grace of God, the the sanctifying grace of God, and the sustaining grace of God, these parables in John chapter 15 will point out in, in, in in a vivid word picture painted for these disciples of what that means and and what that looks like. And we'll endeavor in this text to address some of the the high points. Certainly, there's so much depth to this passage that, that we won't take the time to get into this morning. But through the course of this next year, we will finish this upper room discourse. And even though probably in John chapter 15, they're no longer in the upper room, but on that road to Gethsemane uh, for the unfolding events, Jesus is teaching some critical, critical things in preparation for His departure and to prepare the hearts of these disciples to go out on His behalf as His representatives filled with the Holy Spirit to continue His ministry. It is a weighty thing. When, when we do ministry. It's a weighty thing when we handle the Scripture. It is a weighty thing when we make application to the Scripture. It's just a weighty thing when, when we live in such a, a depraved, decaying culture to hold the line on truth and to speak to truth in clear, cohesive, coherent, concise kinds of ways. And all of us, of course, who, who handle that word can sometimes slip up. And if you're familiar with the global response to uh, one of the well-loved figures in conservative evangelicalism today, Alistair Begg, and some of his recent comments, uh, we begin to understand the weightiness of our words of the text, of our application of that text. I'm sure some of you who listen to him understand the controversy. Others perhaps don't. I'm going to be in the chapel for the next two weeks sharing some pastoral concerns about the topic addressed by Alistair Begg, about the process of that, the implications for the local church, and the Scripture most importantly how is the believer to negotiate and handle the critical complexities of our day remaining true to the doctrinal truths and historic orthodox faith from the beginning of the church? We will be very careful and gentle with our words, but clear and coherent, and I pray concise and sharing our concerns but this, this distraction has ties to certainly how we live in this present age. We'll bring in a lot of different perspectives, but if you would like to have my perspective at least, I invite you to come to chapel as we address those things. Saddened that I have to, blessed that I can according to Scripture. Um, 
and reminded that in this text of ours this morning, there's nothing profitable we can do without Him. What an important reminder for everything in our lives. There's nothing that we can do without Him, and that is all grounded in grace. Father, I pray that You bless us as we take some time this morning to look at this upper room discourse, reflect upon the message of grace from last week, tie it together, and more importantly, be reminded that we are so, so, so dependent on You for absolutely everything. Your spirit of thanksgiving rise in our spirit to know that You have not and will not let us down. But may we hear the caution as well to be careful of the flesh, be careful of trying to go before You and do what only You can do through us, and remind us the very essence of our life is tied to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this magnificent grace, that unmerited favor, not because of, but often in spite of what we've done and who we are, may we worship in spirit and in truth as we understand the implications of that grace, and may our lives be lived for Your glory alone. As we come to the table… See, the pinnacle of that grace depicted in the bread and the cup, a memorial to Christ's death, the payment of our sin, the pouring out and shedding of blood for the forgiveness of our sins, bring a sense of humility and worship to all of us. May all praise go to God the Father and God the Son. God, the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. The Upper Room Discourse begins in John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, Jesus sits and reclines with His disciples in the Upper Room in preparation for the celebration of the Passover meal. And He takes the time to take a basin and towel and go around to each of those reclining at the table, including Judas Iscariot, look each one of those disciples in their eye, give the example of, of servanthood, of kneeling before them, of, of washing their feet, of playing the role of a menial servant. It's an example to these pillars who would stand outside of Judas Iscariot for the truth filled with the Holy Spirit after the departure of Christ. And the inherent warning in the text, even from the beginning in John chapter 13, of our spiritual arrogance seen in Peter when he says, you're not washing my feet. It's never going to happen. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. So Peter says, well, don't stop with my feet. Do, do the rest of it. You see, sometimes we're quick to speak and slow to listen and maybe the somberness of that occasion and the quietness of that room 
left this void where, where, where the uncomfortableness of silence caused Peter to speak up. As I've said from the beginning of my ministry that's been over the span of a lot of years now, Peter had such a, a passion for his Savior, but he was so rough around the edges sometimes. In a haunting kind of way, Jesus says in John chapter 13 that not everyone at this table is clean, righteous, forgiven, restored. Not everyone around that table was perfect. And as he announces this betrayal and then announces Peter's denial, in spite of all of the objections, we are reminded of the frailty of the human heart and the reality that while we're in this world, there is still sin in all of us. Jesus says the answer to that sin is in Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. No one comes to the Father except through me, the very message of 13. There is no cleansing without me. There is no salvation without me. I am the way, the only way to God. I am the truth, true truth. I am life, and you don't have life without me. There are a number of ways we can understand that, but certainly within its context, it's that spiritual life that he speaks of. And Peter, in his confusion, says, explain it to me. And Jesus does. So as he begins in this upper room discourse to plot out the very near future in the coming days of his departure, there is a restlessness in these disciples. And he's seeking to quiet that restlessness. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And the promises that I've made, I will keep and the promises that I've made, I will secure in His own blood. And He says that after His departure, they will not be left alone, but the Spirit of truth will come to them by way of, according to John 14, verses 25 and on, through a helper who we understand to be the Holy Spirit. And through that Spirit, and through that Son, and through that Father, we are told that we have peace. And it's a peace, this is really important in John chapter 14, verse 27, it is a peace that is secured only in Jesus Christ and the triune God. And that's really important as we move forward and reflect upon His words in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And already you are clean in reference to the things he said in chapter 13, because of the word that I have spoken to you and their genuine belief and faith, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine." I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can 
do nothing. And then in a sobering twist in verse 6, he includes, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He is establishing a difference between those who are in him and those who aren't. Those who are producing fruit and those who aren't. Those who are part of the vine and those who aren't. And the reflections can be gleaned throughout all of this upper room discourse. And when we come to this particular text, there are some really critically important things that we grab onto that describes the disciples' relationship to Christ and projected beyond that, the relationship that Christ has to every one of His own, and each of those who are His own have been given by the Father, and each of His own given by the Father are confirmed and secured in the Spirit. We have this Trinitarian understanding in John chapter 13, 14, and 15, and even, even onward. In spite of the fact that Judas was there and he was not a part of Christ, that necessarily becomes clear. But there are some important elements in the text. And this analogy or parable of the vine and the branches. At this point in his message, Judas has left the room because he's not a part of the mind. He has left to go on and betray the master. Jesus is speaking to those genuine believers and helping them understand the burden and, that he con- and the concern that he has that, that not everyone is his. For they would be the spokesman who would get this command and promise of Christ that all power would reside in them, and they were to go into all the world and make disciples, preaching the gospel to every creature, making disciples, and teaching them to do all that He has commanded. They needed to understand there are those who are part of the vine and those that aren't, and the message that they would take is that message of hope and promise in Christ alone in the context, our Trinitarian understanding of the role of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in securing our cleanliness, if we can use that term, coming through Christ alone. Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. That term, I am, was a critically important term in the Old Testament. And throughout the book of John, some seven different times, Jesus will, will use that I am, and then we come to this text, that I am is, is that context, I am the only, I am the real, I am the genuine, I am the divine source of all spiritual life, I am the divine source of all spiritual vitality, I am the divine source of all growth, I am the divine source of all productivity, all, all, all of the works and the blessings of those works that are done by those who are clean. He's distinguishing himself among the voices in the culture and declaring that which is real and distinct, reaffirming his words of John chapter 14, there is only one and I am he, and therefore I am the only way, and I am the only truth, and I am the only 
life. There is no life in anything else. There is no life in anyone else. Genuine spiritual life is in Christ alone. So he says, I am the true vine. Perhaps as they were on this road to Gethsemane into that garden, he grabs a word picture from the environment along the road and maybe points out a vine. And now through this parabolic kind of speech explains their relationship to him and how they would achieve and accomplish everything that he would command them in the context of this upper room discourse. He says he's the true vine, the only source of life, and we could read in Isaiah and then we can read later in Matthew about some of the religious leaders that, that, that they weren't part of that true vine. He's, he's making a comparison here. But he's saying that all who are truly believers have a union with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, but they have a union with Christ beyond that salvation, whatever they do and accomplish in their life, it is because of His source, the source of divine favor. And He will say in the text, without me, you can do nothing, which means nothing, which means nothing. You understand that? That's not something. That's nothing. So often in our, in our lives, we forget that. Perhaps this is why we come to this place of remembrance. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But even in salvation, he makes some really important points here in verse 1. And my Father is the vine dresser. He's the keeper, the planter, the caregiver over this vineyard. There's a, there's a picture And of course, to understand what he's portraying here, you have to understand the rest of the Scripture, but the Bible makes it very clear, in fact, Matthew 6 and other places, that whomever would be given to Christ, whomever would be a part of this vine, would be at the hand and the selection of the Father, and Jesus would confess, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And this goes back to our study in Galatians. Who determines who is a part of that vibrant vine that brings forth fruit? It is the vine dresser. In eternity past, the mind of God determining who's a part of that vineyard and who, and who isn't. We're reminded in this text, though, that the vine is Christ. And he says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Sobering. Every branch in this vineyard that's dead and withered is pruned off. They're they're not a part of the productive true vine. They're not producing fruit we learn later in the text, it's cut off and thrown away and burned in the fire. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So even in his own, he has to, has to trim every once in a while. Pruning can be painful sometimes. But inevitably, he is taking care of those living branches and pruning them back through circumstances and teaching and understanding, pruning them back so that they could produce more fruit. That is the pattern for the Christian life. 
As we grow older, if we go, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there's more fruit. Now, the, the problem is sometimes we misdefine or misunderstand the fruit. It's an eternal, internal fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. It's not works. It's not service. For many will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never, I never knew you. As we reflect upon those I am statements, Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that I have that you have seen me and, and, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, God is the one who draws men and women to salvation. God determines that. And God, in these parameters of Trinitarian effort and salvation, does so through Christ All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We read in John as well, 10 and other places, no one can even pluck us from the Father's hand. We're we're His. It's it's secure. But it's because of the Father, the, the vine dresser. It is because of the Son, the vine. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You notice in this text the sanctifying, saving, sustaining grace? The saving grace is seen in the vine dresser who determines who's a part of the vineyard. The sanctifying grace is this production of fruit as we're grafted into that true vine that gives us nourishment and sustenance and and the ability to serve this God who has chosen us to be a part of that vineyard. And then, of course, the ministry of the Spirit uh, foreshadowed in chapter 14, who who would come and produce those, those things and keep us the sustaining grace until we see Him. Aren't you thankful that even when we stumble and fall, We can be confident in the Trinitarian grace of God and know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But there's a two-edged sword. The other side of that is, as a manifestation of the reality that nothing can separate you from the grace of God, you shall, not you may, you shall produce fruit. And as He prunes you, you will produce more fruit. And by your fruits, they will know that you are part of Him. You see, see how all that goes? Really important stuff in context. This chapter, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. He says in verse 3, already you are clean. That is the saving grace of God. It is the cleansing grace of God. It is the securing grace of God that establishes salvation, that grants us what we cannot achieve in our own efforts and reminds us of the debt that we owe to our Savior. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The Scriptures teach us 
that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. One of the challenges in the Christian life is somehow understanding how God is solely responsible in His grace for everything that I am, for the person that I am, and for the things that I do, and yet somehow I own some responsibility for the expression of faith, the obedience to Christ, and the growth in the Christian life. How do I, how do I bring those things together? How do I wrestle with that tension that only He can do it, but I have some responsibility? That, that's a difficult thing to work through. But we're reminded that the cleansing comes from Christ, and the much fruit comes from Christ, and the glory of God is seen in all that He says and does. And even though we have these charges and commands in our human capacity to obey and to produce fruit, etc., we have this caveat on reminder that you can't do it without Him. You see, it's still all based on grace. It still all goes back there that robs us of any reason of claiming or boasting in our achievements and our accomplishments. I happen to think, though, that it is the very same Word that is part of the pruning process of those living branches. We're reminded that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits of joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Not only is that Word what brings us to, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is that Word that is part of that pruning process. And that's why, and everyone listen, because this matters. That's why Sunday gatherings in the local church sitting under the Word matter. You don't have a choice. You're called to sit under the Word because it is that Word that produces that fruit of the Spirit. It is that Word that prunes the branches and makes us more effective. It is that Word that sometimes gets under our skin because it discerns even the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So easy to judge ourselves by our actions. So through that Word that He has spoken to us, we have been cleaned, and we are being shaped and refined for His glory. And we are commanded in verse 4 to abide in Him, in Christ, as He abides in us, that union picture. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. It is a dead branch worthy of nothing unless engrafted into this vine and getting its sustenance his spiritual vitality from the vine, meaning Christ. And the only way you're engrafted into that vine is through an act of the Father who gives you to His Son for His glory alone. See how all this works? As He talks about this reality and begins to impress this upon His disciples, He makes the application. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. As soon as that branch is broken, that channel of sustenance can no longer get to that vine to bring healthy foliage and fruit. It withers and dies. And he says, the same is true for you in the production of fruit if you don't abide 
in me. Pay attention, he says. You need to abide in me as I abide in you. That preservation of the saints through, through Christ alone, through the Spirit of God, assured by the Father. And that leaves us with this uneasy tension of exertion and diligence on our part, yet totally dependent on God for His part. And if you're looking for me to somehow nuance that and help you understand it, I, I can't, but I can tell you this, without Him you can do nothing. I stand up here under the sustaining, sanctifying grace of God, and I cannot do this without Him. I can't get it right without Him. If I cut off the word, I'm outside of Him, and it is, it is useless, and it doesn't produce… You see how the, this is really applicable in, in all, of our, all of our lives? He says in verse 5, I am the vine, that repetition that is a great teacher. I am the vine, the one and only, the only genuine. It is only through this, I am the vine, and you are the branches, those connected in the text to those who are clean. Whoever abides in me, and you do, and I in him, and he does, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This fruit is described for us as a product of the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such there is no law. So every Christian has all of those things in abundance, I wish. But it's not a smorgasbord either. You don't, you don't get to pick and choose. He's saying through his grafting and through his pruning, you will produce all of these things to various levels, and that production is solely dependent on your union with Christ, for without me you can do nothing. He helps us to love the unlovable, to be patient with a knucklehead, to be kind to those who wish us harm, and to be faithful. Even my faithfulness is dependent on the grace of God. So as we wrap up before we go to the table, he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, He's thrown away like a branch and withers. He's pruned as a, a branch that produces no fruit and has no part of the vine. And those branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. More than likely a veiled reference to the uselessness of being cut off from Christ perhaps even the eternality of the flames that cannot be quenched for those who do not know Him. It's sobering. And He's teaching His disciples, you're in union with me or you're not. And those are the only two conditions, you are or you aren't. You're a branch that produces fruit or you're not. Are there times that we produce little fruit because of our worldliness? Sure. Thank God our 
Our salvation isn't dependent on that. Are there times when we're yielded to the Spirit, we produce much fruit? Absolutely. But God gets all the glory for that. For without Him, you can do nothing. So as He's preparing them for this ultimate commission, He's reminding things that He's taught them along the way. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, every tree or every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bread bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize, they, they will stand out to you by their fruit. Sobering. Therefore, if that's the case, and I am dependent because I can do nothing without Him, I have to be reminded, perhaps even at this table, that in Him all things are possible. (laughs) And He can take this guy and use it for His glory, grafted to that vine, pruned and producing fruit. How blessed are we? God did that. How blessed are we? But it's all because of that Trinitarian work and grace grace alone. Sustaining grace of God that assists in producing fruit from the sanctifying grace of God is a sustaining grace that keeps us. And Jesus reminded His disciples about that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of the hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This Trinitarian effort, we are His, and it's because of His blood. It is because of His sacrifice, and is grounded in grace Trinitarian grace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is not a simple exercise to remind us that Jesus died, and that's enough. It's an exercise to remind us that what He's done, in that initial stage of grace, He will do by grace throughout the course of your life and by grace we'll finish that, and you will stand in His presence. So it is all about Him, all about Him. I don't know about you. That's easy. (laughs) No, no. I have to be reminded, perhaps, purpose for the table. There's a difference between this notion of eternal security that is preached in some churches and the preservation of the saints that is according to the Scripture. Sometimes eternal security is perverted into this thing that that if you prayed this prayer or did this thing, you are saved. It doesn't matter what you do in your life. You can do whatever you want. It's not true. Not according to John chapter 15. What's true according to John chapter 15 is you are saved because of the will of the Father. 
And you are saved because you're engrafted to the Son. And you are saved because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And without Him, you can do nothing. And because of that, He will sustain you to the end for His glory. But it is all about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what we remember when we come to this table of communion. The Bible teaches us then that when we come to this table, we need to examine ourselves. First and foremost this morning, if you don't have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, this is not for you. You're not a part of the vine. You're You're not a part of the vine. We're told to examine through Paul and his instruction to Corinthians. He's speaking to believers for sure. But there also needs to be an examination before we even get to that second step. Do I know him? And why do I know him? And thereby we have to get it right that all things come from the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. I am not a part of this vine without Trinitarian ministry in my life. And if you're not sure that you know, if you're not sure you're engrafted, if you're not producing fruit, it must give you some pause to say, well, if my life represents this branch that is dead, I don't have any part of the vine, this is not a table for you. Perhaps connecting the dots, drinking the fruit of this vine is a testimony that we've been engrafted through His Son. It's not for you as an unbeliever. We're glad you're here. I'd ask you to sit idly by, but give some due consideration to what that means and the implications of all that. For us, because of fruit and production of God's ministry through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're too to examine ourselves. Every time I do this, I realize, according to His measuring stick, I come up so, so short. So I'm reminded I don't come up short because of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because the security of my salvation is not what I do. It's in whom I know. But it doesn't absolve you from your responsibility. And if there's sin in your life, now's the time to deal with it. And you know why? Because God takes that serious. He says, you're part of my vine. Christ is, is sustaining your life. You're supposed to pr- produce, produce fruit, but you're withering on the vine. What, what's the deal? And we have an opportunity with our advocate, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, to confess and He is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. What a glorious promise. Examine yourselves before you eat of this bread and drink of this cup. In a moment, I'll ask Jeff to pray, but before that, this is really important, and I probably don't share this enough with you, but, but I need to. This is a table of unity. 
we're all different. We all come from different places with different personalities and different stories, but God has brought us all together here and engrafted us to the vine for His glory, and, and you belong here because of what Christ has done, not what you bring to the table. But it also reminds me that as we come as one body solely through this Trinitarian effort, we produce fruit. Bill Coleman and I even talked about it this past week. I'm so thankful of the production of fruit that God is producing through you today. And I see it as the body works together and every joint supplies. As you faithfully exercise your gifts, as you faithfully sit under the Word, this is where it's most pronounced even recently for me, as you faithfully minister to each other. And I want to tie it to last week's message. My job is to bring the Word, and your job is to serve the gathering of saints. I want to commend you. And I'm blessed at the number of hands involved in the work of the ministry at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. But I'll remind you as well, I thank God through Jesus Christ that that's a reality because without Him, you can't produce any fruit. So accept our praise, Father, but remind us of our source as well. Thank you for your service. So as we quiet our hearts, I'd ask Jeff to pray for the bread as we examine ourselves, and it's distributed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we take this bread, Lord, just help us to remember the price that was paid for this, Lord. Help us remember, Lord, that you sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins in a, in a painful death on the cross, Lord. And that you loved us so much that you did this for us, Lord. Help us, Lord, through this. Help us to remember this, Lord. Help us to keep our focus on you, Lord, as we take this bread. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an appointed time for Christ's death on the cross of Calvary. In the beginning moments of this upper room discourse, the clock started to tick, and in the mere hours from them, it would all transpire and unfold. Scriptures remind us that on that night in which He was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and He broke it. He gave it to His disciples and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Jared Horton, would you ask the blessing of the cup? Dear Lord, we thank you for today, for the day that you have given us and been so gracious to us that we may live in the world that you created for us as creator of the whole universe. Lord, I pray as we consider these elements before us and what you did for us, that you sent down your son to die for us and to cover our sins that we may live forevermore with you. Lord, there will be a day that you will pour out your cup of wrath and judgment upon the earth. 
but we thank you that you provide your son in this cup that we remember what he's done for us. That we may live all because of you and apart from you, we can do nothing. I thank you for these things and I pray as we reflect upon it that it may change our lives and that the fruit we may produce bring glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Scriptures teach us that in the same manner also, when he had supped, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are humbled. We are called and brought to our knees in worship. We understand that without you, we can do nothing. And through your plan, you've made us part of the vine, the body of Christ. Through that spiritual life and sustenance through your spirit, you produce much fruit. May it be so. As we live in obedience to you and are reminded that this is all grace and we've done nothing. As we live out that reality, wrestling with our obligations of obedience, may the sustaining grace of God and keep us until the day we're glorified and produce much fruit in us until that day for your glory alone. I pray that you would bless this benevolence offering. Bless, pray that you would bless that which is given and, and those who will be assisted and helped with it. This might be a, a faithful act, a fruit-bearing act of your body ministering to those in need, and a timely reminder that without you, we can do nothing. So use this for your glory and produce much fruit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.